Good morning, everyone. Hello, everybody. It's lonely up here. Um, I'm really glad to be here um, because church is always a special place for me. Um, and I, I think it's fair for me to say that you are here because you belong here today, right? You know, it has been said that anywhere you find yourself, you've made plans to be there at some point in your life. Just kind of think about that for a little bit. Um, so we're not here by happenstance or by coincidence. We're here by design. And perhaps you, in whatever you've done in your life, um, has had something to do with this. Um, you know, I'm supposed to be preaching about Acts 6, 1 through, through 7, and I'm going to get there. Um, but this is um, New York City's Faith Against Domestic Violence Weekend, um, the 9th through 11th. And just a few days ago, on Thursday, the First Lady, um, Charlene McRae, the Bill de Blasio's wife, um, had a press conference where they laid out an initiative for the um, We Understand ad campaign, which is a 12-week campaign. Um, it's the first time in 10 years that New York is reinitiating a web portal that is going to address the domestic violence issue um, in New York City. And, um, you know, in the wee hours of the morning as I was preparing this sermon, and I know that our church plans on um, designating a weekend to discuss domestic violence, but I thought that considering who I am and what I do, um, I had a responsibility to address um, it on this very important weekend. And so I want you to um, indulge me. I think it was befitting that notwithstanding um, we were having this, this faith initiative on this weekend that the, the mayor's wife was also rolling out this initiative. Um, it's the New York City Hope, which is designed to provide help for survivors. Um, we don't call them survivor to victims anymore. We call them survivors. Um, and these services are designed not necessarily to support, but to end um, the cycle of domestic violence. Um, this was born out of 80,000 phone calls that domestic violence hotlines receive each year, and that's a conservative estimate. And New York City NYC Hope is the first of its kind um, web portal. And this will have a 12-week, you'll see them on the posters. My office had something to do with the authorship of that, and you will see it on the bus stops and in um, the different ad campaign forums. Um, we often associate domestic violence to intimate partners, but you should know that domestic violence also includes um, violence or abuse from family members. Um, the term intimate partner or intimate partner violence includes many different um, aspects, and I think it's important that we should all be aware of them and how they are defined. It includes actual or threats of physical violence, actual or threats of sexual violence, emotional or psychological abuse, name calling or put downs, threats, um, efforts to out 
someone's sexuality to their family or to their friends and workplace. Um, and I particularly think that emotional um, domestic violence is relevant to the church, oftentimes and unfortunately so. Um, we recognize that the church is a microcosm of our greater world. But we also find some false sense of security at times in thinking that because of the, the holiness that this church represents, there's a certain security from what may be happening outside these hallowed walls. Um, also, vet, domestic violence is oftentimes more readily appreciated by its physical and empirical evidence. And so when someone comes to church, and I'm going to be as frank as I should be, um, and there aren't any black eyes or there aren't any wounds to speak of, oftentimes we think everything is okay. But sometimes those wounds and those scars are inside. And oftentimes they're, they're um, belied by a smile or, or something else. Sometimes there's deep hurt. And so in our church, which is a microcosm of the, other, of, the, of the world, we recognize that domestic violence is not only a part of our global church, it's a part of our local church, and it is a part of this church. And the sooner that we address it is the more healthy our church is going to be. And so in churches in general, like emotional violence, there is also domestic violence that manifests itself in stalking. And stalking can take its, its form in um, digital violence where an inordinate amount of text messages are being sent to someone or letters, emails, phone calls, um, where the, the author of these may not necessarily think they're doing anything wrong. But that's not the, the method of measurement. The method of me measurement is what impact is it having on the person or the target. And oftentimes these excessive emails or text messages or this inundation of or an effort to communicate with this person who, has, who has, has asked this other person to stop is an is a effort to control um, through threats or this unwanted presence. There's also the financial abuse that many people experience where the offender is using money to control the, 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 the survivor. Um, controlling the amount of money the person has to their disposal or keeping them from working, keeping them from being um, independent. And this type of violence is geared to control, it's geared to create fear, um, it's, it's, it's geared to inhibiting any type of personal growth that that person may have. Um, internet partners, intimate partners can include a current or former boyfriend or spouse dating partners, it is not peculiar to heterosexual relationships, it is much part of um, homosexual relationships or same-sex relationships as it is any, and it crosses racial, ethnic, and cultural barriers. Um, I just want to give you a few statistics, um, national statistics, one in four women and one in seven men, because men's cases of domestic violence 
is um, historically underreported, um, will experience severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. One in 10 women in the United States will be raped by an intimate partner in her lifetime. One in 10. Approximately 16.9% of women and 8% of men will experience sexual violence other than rape by an intimate partner at some point in their lifetime. Data on sexual violence against men, as I said, is underreported. That's why there's only 2.3% of men and 9.7% of women who have had reported stalking incidents um, by an intimate partner during their lifetime. And nearly half of all women, half of all women in the United States will experience psychological aggression by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Over half of female victims of rape, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner experience some form of an, in let me read that again. Over half of female and male victims of rape, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner experience some form of intimate partner violence for the first time before they were 25 years of age. That is why it's so important to teach and educate our children to be comfortable in speaking up. I think the statistics are startling and oftentimes we're just not aware how pervasive it is. Intimate partner homicide accounts for half of all New York City family-related murders. And the New York City Police Department responds to approximately 230,000 domestic incidents each year. It permeates all categories of relationships and ethnic and economic stratas of our community, including our global church, our local church, and this church. You know, sometimes we are comfortable knowing that the church is this microcosm and we dance around the reality that is our experience, which is not any less worse than the world of which we are a part. We oftentimes justify our conduct as being Bible principled or some form of righteous indignation, or even that we are children of an extraordinary God with an extraordinary ability to forgive. And that is true. And prayer has the power and the ability to change. And to that end, we will strive. However, let me take this opportunity to correct the record for those of you who subscribe to some poppycock or nonsensical form of Christianity that finds this kind of behavior okay. Love is not unkind and does not belittle disrespect, demean, nor deprive. It does not leave pain nor scar. Love is synonymous with God. It values and respects. Love promotes, it advances and expands. It uplifts and elevates. It preserves and encourages, supports, promotes, and feels, feels a sense of security. It is never, ever violent. If there is anyone within the hearing of my voice who finds him or herself in a relationship in which you are controlled or helpless, trapped or fearful for your safety, I, as well as many of us, will pray that you will find the courage and strength to seek help.
call someone, speak to someone you can trust. You might notice that I didn't say call a friend because sometimes our friends are part of the world you're in and may sometimes try and excuse the conduct. Speak to someone you trust. Call 311 and ask to speak to someone at the Justice Center. There are many of them throughout the city where there are trained professionals, experts, subject matter experts who are there 24 hours a day willing to help you free yourself from the bondage that is domestic violence. And you will be no less a Christian for doing so. Amen? But I have a sermon to preach. Um, when Todd asked me a few weeks ago to preach, I, um, you know, I'm usually, he's usually catching me at a very, very busy time. And um, it's, it's usually so busy that um, I'm never, I never generally have an, an opportunity to think it through, to, to say, or to consider whether or not I have an option to say no. One, because I don't like saying no to Todd because um, he's a good man and he's a decent man and generally he's always coming from a decent place. And, and more importantly, I don't like saying no to God because um, the truth is I'm always asking God for things and, you know, he's kind of like a quid pro quo. He gives me things and I try and give him everything. Um, so I said yes amid the madness of my world and he tempered his conversation with me by saying that we're doing this sermon series and I have this passage of scripture that is just got your name all over it. When you read it, it's a great story. You're going to love it. You're going to run with it. So I just said, I'll take your word for it, Todd. I'm good. So um, because my world is, is sometimes unhealthily chaotic, I didn't get to this text until this week, truth be told. Um, but I'm amongst family. I can tell you the, the, the truth. And so I read the text, and um, to be quite frank, I did not experience the, the thrill and the excitement that Todd, that I heard in Todd's voice. And so what I did was I said, you know, this story's got to be there somewhere because just so you know, I'm not a scholar. I'm, I'm not scholarly. You know, I'm someone who just likes a good story. You know, I want to hear, in whatever you're telling me, I want to be able to hear that once upon a time. You know, it doesn't have to happen with, it doesn't have to end with happily ever after, as my world generally doesn't, but I want to hear that once upon a time. And you know what? It doesn't matter where you are, everybody likes a good story, right? Everyone, everyone likes a good story. That's why Disney and all these other movie companies have their test audience as, with as many adults as possible because they know that if adults love it, um, it's a good chance they're going to love taking their children to the movies, right? Right, Lincoln? Yes. Lincoln is our resident movie aficionado. And so, um, you know, I started to read the story over and over again because I'm, I'm looking for that, 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 that excitement that Todd had in his voice and I couldn't find it. And so I realized that I was faced with a little bit of a struggle. Um, as for those of you who have come up here, when you, you, when you are 
giving a talk based on what you want is much easier, but when someone gives you a topic, it's a little different. And the truth of the matter is, I had a, a, a sermon that I've been thinking about. So in the event that Todd did ask me about it, and the topic of the sermon is, and maybe one day you will hear it, is Jay-Z and the Virgin. Jay-Z. Does anybody, anybody here not know who Jay-Z is? No one, is there anyone here who knows who Jay-Z is? There's still some people who do not know. Um, and you are living under a rock. Um, so we'll, we'll get to that sermon, but this wasn't it. So I said to Todd, listen, you know, can I work this Jay-Z and the Virgin in there somewhere? Um, and he said, uh, he said, you know, I, I, I'd prefer not. Um, but you, if you have to, have to absolutely go ahead and do it. And I, I tried to work it in, but Jay-Z just didn't fit in Acts 6 verses 1 to 7. So I'm going to have to table that for another, another time. So what I did was I went to the beginning of Acts to see if I could find that once upon a time. And I didn't find the once upon a time, but I found context for where we were in Acts 6. And Acts 6 is a journey that the Jerusalem church is taking. We have the 12 disciples whose ministry was informed by an experiential association with Jesus. And so they knew at firsthand what his mission story was, what his, his vision for the world was. And so they were acting upon that. And they were very good at it. These 12 men, we know that one fell by the wayside and he was replaced. But there were these 12 godly men who were faithful and secure in their mandate that they were going to preach the gospel to the world. And they were good. And they started off with 12. 12 of them. And if you read the account... And we're going to start with verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because of their widows. Their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God, in order to wait on tables. And I'm going to get back to that, that text. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to faith. Now, to understand where we are, you have to go back to Acts 1. And if you read Acts 1, it tells us that this Jerusalem church was as healthy as any church could be. It started off with 12 people. I think by the time we get to verse 2, to, verse, to chapter 2 rather, the church has grown to 120 members. By the time we get to chapter 3, 
the church has experienced this exponential growth to 3,000. And you ask yourself, what were these 12 men doing that we are not? And today, we would call that a mega church, where there are three, four services in the day. In chapter 4, verse 4, the church is now a body of 5,000, 12 men. And where we are in chapter, in chapter 6, it is estimated that the church is now approximately 14,000 members strong. The church is great. And notwithstanding, through chapters 1 through 6, which is punctuated through imprisonment, floggings, the chicanery and deceit of Ananias and Sapphira, the church is still healthy and it's growing. But if you envision the church as a body, each person being dependent on the other, and like any family, when, the church, when a body of people grow, issues arise. And when there's a body of people growing, there isn't going to be the homogeny that maybe 12 would have provided. Then you have different ethnic groups coming in, different cultural practices, different ways of thinking. And so was the Church of Jerusalem at this time. And we spoke of the two major groups in the church, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And it was the Hellenistic women, widows, whose friends were complaining. They were complaining that notwithstanding the health in this church, there was a deficit. And the Hebrew widows were being treated better than the Hellenist widows. Now, on first glance, you look at this and you say, this is a really minor issue. How did this, of all the things that were going on in that church, how did that find itself in the Bible? Why did Dr. Luke think to publish this one thing? When I read chapter, chapter 6, verse 2, which we just read, and let's just go back to it, it says, It said, so the 12 gathered all the, dis the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And it's interesting that I did a little research because this is where the discipleship was now developing. This is where the whole concept of the diaconate and deacons, um, it is argued, began. And the whole concept of discipleship, which means to serve, comes from another root word, which means to wait on tables, which is the word that is used in this text, in the original text. And so we have these ministers who are preaching to the congregation, and because of their devotion and their ministry, the church is growing. There is, there is no question that the, the growth of the church is inextricably accredited to the faithfulness of these preachers. What they're doing is not only blessed by God, but they are doing it well, and people are coming to the church. 
those who are the Hebrews, who are the, the local people, and also the Hellenists, who were people from outside of Israel in the Roman Empire, maybe from Macedonia or Crete or, or, or Italy. And they were Jewish converts coming into the church, but they probably came with their cultural differences, their different way of dress, their different way of conduct. And it was contrastingly different to the way the Hebrew people who were, who were more traditional, more conservative in their, in their values and their, their, their practice. But notwithstanding, the church was growing. But here in this one instance, an, uh, a conflict arose. And what is a good story without a conflict anyway? And so this conflict arose and immediately there was an outcry. And now if we, this were to happen in our church, we would probably get a food distribution task force together. We'd probably have a board meeting about it. There'd probably be a, a, um, a number of meetings to decide whether, whether or not it was true and who's responsible for doing this. But here these 12 men and their helpers determined that this was an issue that was important. Now the widows of the time were women who otherwise would not have had anywhere to go but the church. They were fed and they were taken care of and they were the women who would pray for the church. So they were important. And these men recognized the importance of each of these people. And they wanted it to be addressed. And so when I read that verse, I did feel somewhat uncomfortable with my, my initial interpretation of it. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. I mean, on, on first glance, it would suggest that they were above waiting on tables, right? Right? It's okay to say yes or no. And so I thought, you know, who, who are these guys? And then you read further down, and it says, brothers and sisters, choose seven men. They do not choose the seven men. They go to the, to the congregation, and they ask the congregation of Hebrews and Hellenists, you choose who these seven men should be. And again, you, one would expect that if the Hellenists are the ones who are having the issue with the Hebrews, who would you recommend the fixers of the issue to be to make it all legitimate and right? Hellenists or the Hebrews? The Hebrews, right? Because if the Hellenists were the ones saying, you're not feeding us enough, in good faith, a good faith gesture would be for the Hebrews to do it. But remember, the leaders had said, no, you pick. And the church, the Hebrews and the Hellenists, the, the, the culturally diverse and, and ethnically by diverse church decided these seven men. And they chose men, there was a qualification, men who were of the Holy Spirit and men full of faith. So they weren't looking at the way they looked. They weren't looking at the way they dressed or the way they acted. They were looking at the content of their hearts. How godly are these men? And they put, picked the seven. And what also is very interesting here is that these were not men who could only serve the women. Because we know Stephen, the giant 
that Stephen is in the New Testament. Stephen became the first martyr. And we know the giant that Philip was. And Philip's children, if I'm not mistaken, his daughters were prophetesses. And so it stands to, to reason that these men were not unifaceted. They didn't pick these men because they were good cooks or they were good servants. They picked these men because they were godly, faithful men. And this is a huge lesson to us. And then what did they do? They presented these men to the apostles, not of the apostles choosing, the congregations choosing, and they laid hands on them and they blessed them. And then the, the apostles were able to go back to what they were destined, called to do. And that was preach the word, pray, and bring people to God. And I thought about what Todd was, you know, and Todd and I have conversations and I understand why he was so excited about this. Because our church does promote and enjoy somewhat of a local and layperson leadership. But the reality is, is that the deficit in the church is that we are not owning our own ministry and our own service. The apostles recognized that the reason why the church was growing was because they were doing what God had mandated them to do. And anything else was going to be a diversion. Now here's this body of 14,000 people. And they went to the apostles with this issue of food for an aspect of their congregation. Now, we all know that in many different churches, we are expecting the pastors to do everything. And there are some very supernaturally talented pastors that can do everything. Have you ever gone to a church and they start preaching into a really great sermon, and then in the middle of the sermon they just break out into song? Right? No? They get to the piano and they start playing and, you know, it's a part, and they can do it all. You know, something's, something's not working on the AV, the camera isn't working or the mic isn't working and the guys are struggling in the back. They'll go down there and fix it. Potluck food isn't going well. They go down there, put on the apron. They can do it all. Let's be frank. I don't want Todd in the potluck room, Right? Right? I don't want Todd up here substituting for Alex, for praise team, right? Have you heard Todd sing? No. So the, the message is, why should he have to take care of all these other things that on its face may seem somewhat minor but are integral to some important aspect of the church. The reality is this. There is no ministry. There is no ministry in the church that is broken, that shouldn't be fixed, even if it means potluck. And the inclination for us is to be those observers and identifiers of the deficits in the church. You know, you will come into church and you'll see someone at the front and you'll say, you know what, I don't like the way that person greeted me. 
I would suggest to you that if you identify an aspect in the church that needs to be fixed, that is probably the ministry that you are designed for. You identified it. Be a part of the solution, right? If you can identify a problem, it means that you might have some sensibility about the solution. And so maybe you should be the one at the front door showing how it's done. You've got an issue with potluck. You don't like the way it's served or the way it tastes or the way it's organized. Maybe hospitality is your thing. Don't talk about it. Join Raquel and I and be a part of it. The reality is, church, is that each of us has the responsibility to find what our service is. And we get caught up with the titles and we get caught up with the leadership. We don't want that, that ministry because it doesn't suit my skill set. That's not my expertise, but there's still a deficit there. And what happened here, you had someone like Peter, someone like Stephen and Philip, who could do so much more, but recognize the issue and said, we will fix it. And we know it was fixed because the church began to multiply. And so this is a call for each of us to recognize what your purpose is. What are you going to do? We are the Magnificent Seven. Is it up there? Yeah. I looked long and hard for that. We are the seven. More so than that, more than the seven, we are the magnificent. And how do I know that? Because each of us may at some point say, well, you know what? I don't know what my talents is or what my ministry should be. Because you know what? I, I, you know, I, I'm going to leave it up to them. Because oftentimes we describe or we identify ministry as someone that's being in the front, someone who's being in the fore. And you know what? Not everybody has a ministry of words. There are ministries of works that are necessary. If we had a church that all we did was listen to preachers, the church would crumble. And by the same token, if it was a church that was all about the doing and no word, no, no being fueled by the word, we would crumble. And so Todd and Kyle and Nick have a specific carve-out. They are the, the sermoners, if you will. They are the spiritual leaders who provide us with the spiritual word, the spiritual food, to fuel us to do the other things, right? As many as we are here, there should be no ministry unattended, no matter how simple, how small it is. And you may say, well, you know, I'm not cut out for that. Well, you, you may not be cut out for that, but you are cut out for something. You may be a great listener. You may be someone who can sit and listen. And there may be a need in the church for someone who just wants to be or needs to be listened. Or you may be that person who can converse. And I'm not talking about the person who's got all the solutions. And I know I kind of fit into that kind of category because I'm like a solver, a problem solver. And my wife will probably attest to that, that I do a little bit more talking than I do listening. Um, but that's up. The jury's still out on that. 
But we recognize, we, you got to recognize what you can do for others. And you know, if you love someone, if you love someone, you may recognize that I may not be the solution to your problem, but I know someone who is. And that's also a service. But the ability to speak to someone and bring them to a point where they want to talk and unburden themselves without instructing them and giving them advice is a talent, is a need in this church. You would be surprised how valuable what you can bring to this church can be for the health and growth of this church. And so the mandate that we have today for each of us is that we have to find our ministry. I'm gonna wrap this up with a few things. One, have a friend of mine who recently, who's not that young, recently decided to learn to ride a bike, a motorbike, and he's a big guy. And his instructor told him that you've got to lean, and is anyone here who rides a bike? Right, and you can, you can disagree if, if he's given me false information here. He told me that his instructor said, listen, when you lean, you've got to lean into the turn. Is that correct? You've got to lean into the, two rules, lean into the turn, and number two, keep your eye on where you're going. So he got on the bike and he was learning and he was finding his, finding his, his, his rev, if you will, and then he found that he kept knocking over the cones. He was leaning into the, cor into the, into the corners, but he was knocking over the cones. And it didn't matter how many times he was going around the course, kept knocking over the corn. On the, on, the, on the straight way, he was fine. So he went to his instructor, and his instructor said to him, you're not keeping on your eye on where you're going. You're keeping your eye on where you're not supposed to go. He had his eyes on the cones, the obstacles in the way. The question is, where do you want to go? Number one, and you can answer that in your inter with your internal answer. But more importantly, where is your eye? Is your eye on where you're going? Well, we know where our eye is on this, in this church. We want this church to be a beacon of light in upper, the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and we want people to come and enjoy the very things that we are enjoying here for the very same reasons why we are here, because we've got our goal on heaven. So we've got to keep our eye on heaven, and we cannot allow the obstacles to get in the way. And you know, the obstacles are the things that you can navigate. You either go around it or you step over it. Those are the obstacles. We can deal with those. What we have to do as a collective body is to deal with the barriers. Those are the things that we have to negotiate around or go through. And we cannot do that of our own doing. We need each other. We are all so much better, so much more as a sum than we are as an individual part. Remember a couple of things. In my office, there is a poster that reads, and I don't know who the author is, but it says, if leadership, if, if serving is below you, leadership is beyond you. So my suggestion to you is forget the title. We all know that titles are for books. 
Focus on your service, and leadership will find you. Right? If you focus on the leadership, you will lose sight of why you're there, what you're there for. Have you, do any of you have, have, have or has ever had a boss who will only give you what you need to know, but not everything he knows? Because there's a sense of insecurity. I had a boss like that. Come into my office, I was the deputy at the time, and he would say, Derek, something's gonna go down today. And I'd be like, why? Can't tell you, man. <laughs> and this kept going on and on until when he would come in and say, listen, Derek, something's going to go. Something's going to happen. I'd say, I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. And just kept on doing what I was doing. Maybe there was some insecurity or some fear that if you give them too much, you lose you lose hold of the power. But that's not how we, we lead. Effective leadership makes itself eventually unnecessary. I'm going to say that again. Effective leadership makes itself eventually unnecessary. If you are going to be the leader of what you're doing, no matter what it is, and this isn't about being up here, right? This isn't about being in the front. Whatever you choose to be, be the leader. What is the enemy of good? What is the enemy of good? And if you are here this morning, don't answer. This is interactive, my friends. What is the enemy of good? Who says bad? That's the opposite of good. What's it? No. It's great. Great excellence is the enemy of good. Everybody can be good. When my daughter comes home and I say, sweetie, how did you do on the math test today? Did all right. I did good. Ah, I, want to see the, I want to see the math test. Something went wrong. Because good, everybody can be good. Good is a C, right? Isn't good a C? No? No? <laughs> Maybe for you as the parent, <laughs> but for the child, for the parent, for the child, good is not good enough. Right? We're not sea Christians. No. We are magnificent Christians. And magnificent Christians have a purpose. They've identified what their function is. They've identified what their value is and they know where they're going. They know what the purpose is. We're not gonna ask Todd and Kyle and Nick to do what we know we can do or what we've identified that we can do. This is Black History Month, and I'm gonna close with the words of the great doctor. He said, anyone can be great because anyone can serve. Anyone can be great because anyone can serve. If you can serve, you can be great. And so I close by encouraging you to speak to Nye. And Nye, I'm sorry, I'm calling you out. Nye, to me, and I like to give credit where it's due, kind of encapsulates what 
community service and community outreach he's about. He's always in something. He's in the kitchen. He's, he's outside. He's kind of, he's, I guess he's a Hellenist because he comes to church in the shorts and the T-shirt. I remember the president of the general conference came and we were all in the vestry in our suits and Nye came in with his shorts on. But came to serve. Who cares what, how you dressed? Who wants to be an empty suit? Came to serve. God bless you, nice. Stay focused. He's got plans for you. I think of Walter and Millie. I think of where we started, Alex, where we were sweeping the streets, cleaning the baptismal. Alex was singing. I was preaching, or Alex was preaching, and I was singing. Alex decided to play the guitar because we didn't have music because the pianist had left. There was 12, 15 of us. Look at us now, and we've only just begun. Be magnificent. <laughs>